Hey guys, Scott Devine here, and I'm back with another episode of the Scots Bass Lessons podcast. And today I am lucky enough, and you are lucky enough, to have one of my favourite bass educators of all time, Mr. Ed Friedland. He is probably the most published bass author of all time, and he is also, which you'll find out in this interview, playing bass now for the huge band, The Mavericks. So he's touring the world, doing that whole thing and, you know, enjoying himself. And he's going to get into that in this interview. But remember, if you are an Academy member, that Ed has always also been a regular visiting artist and at the Academy and has done many, many live stream seminars for you guys. So if you want to check out one of his past seminars, just navigate to the the seminar archive from your dashboard and you'll be able to find them there and also obviously look out for all his upcoming live seminars as well because he's he's back in the academy all the time now if you're listening to the podcast on itunes i'll send you all of my bass love if you subscribe and leave a review as that really helps us get the word out about these interviews guys and i really think there's so much to be learned from listening to great bass players such as the guests that we have on the show And if you're listening to this anywhere else other than scottsbasslessons.com, make sure you shoot over to the site and check out the show notes for this episode as I've put some fantastic videos up of Mo in there so you can check those out, okay? Now, if you're completely new to Scott's Bass Lessons, go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit, okay? scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit that put some really cool video resources that you can download on there and check out like a base buyer's guide we've got um, a video where i talk about how to get gigs great gigs wherever you are in the world so if you're moving to a new city or you're trying to break into the scene where you are i'll give you some great tips for that we've got a understanding the modes mini course We've got a backing track library. There's loads of stuff in there. It's totally free for you to download. Just go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. And also, remember, if you're an Academy member over at scottsbasslessons.com, you can watch the entire video version of this interview as well, okay? We film the entire thing as we do with all our podcasts. We film all of them. And if you're not already an Academy member, just go and check it out over at scottsbassessence.com. In a nutshell, it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world. The step-by-step courses, live seminars every week, the largest online bass educational community in the world. And those guys are so, so supportive and tons more. The whole nine yards. And we have a completely free 14-day trial for you as well. So you can take it for a test drive just to see if it's for you. And if you find it isn't, no sweat, you can cancel your account within the click of two buttons. Now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hey guys, how are you doing? It's Scott here again from the SBL podcast and I am really, really pleased to have with me today the awesome, the amazing Ed Friedland who is right now the bass player for the Mavericks. He's been touring the world and now I throw this statistic out there. This, uh, I always say that you're the most published bass author of all time. Are you? I think you probably uh... are, right? Well, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever bothered to count, but you know, I've got a lot of books, and if you count the articles, I might be a top think, five. Anyway, I think you're up there, man. I think you're up there. Like, if we sort of obviously, you've got a huge background. If people check out, I'm going to put like who you've played with in the uh, in the show notes of this episode. You've got a huge. Um, array of artists that you've played with you've also you taught at Berkeley you've published books throughout your career you've written for 
um, some great magazines. But how did you actually find the bass? How did you get into the bass in the first place? Uh, well, the bass, you know, I started out like a lot of people as a guitar player uh, first. And then when I went into junior high school, they offered like a string orchestra program. So, you know, I went into that and I had a choice of instrument and I picked the bass mainly because I already played guitar. So I knew the four bottom strings. Yeah. I figured that'll help, you know, to, and it did. And uh, so I mean, I studied classical uh, for the first, say, five years. I played upright bass. Uh, so, you know, it was a school thing. And were your, parents, still, were your parents into it? Were they into music at all? Uh, yeah, well, you know, my dad was real supportive. He bought me my first electric guitar. My mom paid for music lessons. And, you know, my grandfather was a musician, among other things. And so it wasn't like, oh, don't do that. You know, like, oh, yeah, you know, it was accepted. And yeah, it was yeah. encouraged, I guess, mainly because they, I think they saw, hey, he's good at this. Let's encourage that. I, whereas everything like sports and other things I wasn't so good at. So they said, all right, you know, he's not going to make it on the ball team, but maybe he can play, you know, in the band. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it worked out. It worked out good that way. And it was all classical but, to start with. Yeah, yeah. The first, you know, I never played any jazz really until maybe my last year of high school uh, on bass. I was really at more actively a guitar player through through my high school years, junior high and high school. I identified as a guitar player. Yeah, I uh, played in bands and all of that sort of thing. And uh, but I was always studying classical and uh, playing in string orchestra, playing in the citywide orchestra and things like that. Uh, so you know, it was a great background because even though I won't say I, yeah, I'm a classical player, I I couldn't cut an orchestral gig uh but you know that background was tremendously helpful and uh you know it helps me every day when i what, play what was it uh, about the background of that that was really helpful well, well you know first off uh you know learning to playing with the bow intonation hand position you know all these things that get drilled into you yeah uh and, and mind you, I don't use a lot of this now. Like if you see me with the Mavericks, my hand, I get comments. The, the talk bass guys are always like, oh, look at his hand position. I'm like, you know what? You don't, <laughs> under, you don't understand. Here's the thing. You know, classical playing is one thing. I'm playing a very particular type of music, a very particular type of sound I'm trying to get. And there's a different technique for that, first yeah. off. So... Uh, so for all the all the the armchair geeks out there who get bent about my hand position, there's a reason for it and yeah. a very good reason. But uh, regardless of that, um, uh, you know, but but having that, knowing where the notes are and having the the position kind of ingrained is really helpful. Bowing, I never really get to use anymore. I mean, I practice still because, as far as left hands, people say, how do I build my strength? bow a whole note you know i mean just that, that constant <laughs> yeah holding when it you down pit, pit, pizzicato i mean eventually you release the note but if you have to sustain and hold that note to the board that builds hand strength so it's really good for that among other things but just you know general general intonation and positioning and uh you know uh just the hours the hours with the instrument really helped uh, uh, and I don't need much of any of that now for yeah. what I do. It's not even like a jazz gig. It's even more 
of a direct like yo when you play jazz the classical background really comes in handy i think yeah but i'm playing you know like i don't know what i'd call it i guess you call it roots upright or yeah yeah or whatever it's a different thing it's it's more like a cross between uh like latin like style afro-cuban style bass like that real yeah. fat pumpy yeah and 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 like that studio like the 50s upright bass sound, you know, you listen to those old rock and roll records where they got the bass really well mic'd and it's like the bass is huge, but it's an upright and it's that big yeah, yeah kind of, yeah, yeah. that's the, you know, that's what I'm going for mostly, so. And I suppose that but, uh, the classical must have sorted your reading out as well, obviously, I think. Oh yeah, well yeah. of course, and reading, reading music, yeah, I mean, I had learned how to read before I started on guitar. I had guitar teachers that taught me how to read. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a tremendous advantage. Of course, again, professionally right now, I never use that skill, but I have it. And, you know, it just gives you a perspective. I think what a lot of people miss, you know, when they're, they're studying is like, oh, well, I, I don't need that. I mean, I'm in this kind of a band. I play this. I don't need to do that. Or I don't need to learn this, or this doesn't directly relate to what I'm doing. So they think that there's no benefit yeah. to practicing or or acquiring that. And it's, I'm here to tell you that's wrong. I was actually you know? going to say, I was going to yeah. say, what advantages do you think oh, yeah. that reading music can bring to, to students that are listening to this? Yeah, well, you know, when you develop that reading ability, you now have a visual reference to the music you hear yeah. when you get really good at it i think you know like i can listen to a, a line or listen to a song or a melody and i can sort of see how it would be notated in my head like i can envision it uh yeah. if i think about it it doesn't just appear to me i'm not like you know like some computer genius brain freak <laughs> but i mean but you know but if i think about it i could say oh yeah i could write it out and transcribing and things like that so yeah. you know when you can hear music and also see it like how it's represented visually, it's a really powerful place to work from. And there have been moments across, you know, in, over the years where being able to recall the visual was really helpful. Because like, you know, there's a song and it's like, I don't know, what, what, what was that? Oh yeah, but I remember what it looked like. So you can you know, actually so instantly there, you get know, it. Yeah, yeah there's, there's all sorts of ways that it comes in handy. But I mean, the bigger picture is that it expands your musical mind and uh, that's a good thing, regardless of some of the people I've worked with that, that feel like, oh, I don't want to learn. I don't want to get too smart because then I'll lose the feeling. And that's such total. Yeah. Can I say can I say bullshit? I, I mean, let's bullshit. face it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah go for that's it. Bull, that's a way to that's just a way to make yourself feel better about being a dumbass, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm all oh, the gloves are off. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but, but, but off, no, man. you know, seriously, I mean. Look, I, I'll, I'll just get it out of the way. I'm, I'm, I have, you know, I, uh, people, I think, dance around shit a lot. You know, they, they don't want to come right out and say it. They want to be nice. They want to be, uh, they don't want to ruffle feathers. But the bottom line is a certain thing, and this is where Jeff Berlin and I have common ground. We're both New Yorkers, you know, and, <laughs> and so we both kind of have a tendency to, like, just lay it out there. Of course, you know, I mean, I've Jeff, well, he's, you know, he's changing his heart about some things Latin these days, which is really interesting to see. Uh, I don't agree with everything he says uh, or has said, but he's, you know, obviously a, a great player and on a personal level, a pretty nice guy, you know, but yeah, yeah. I understand how he feels and why he says 
some of the th- or has said some of the things he said in the past in his brusqueness because people come at you with they they're asking you a question but really they're telling you what they think yeah and it's yeah, like yeah, oh, yeah. you're you're asking me a question because I'm I'm an expert of sorts if you want to if you agree that to that then you're asking me a question but really what you're doing is you're telling me what you think is right and trying to get me to agree with you and it's not the case all the time trying to and, and, some, an and sometimes you just got to say no this is this and yeah that that pisses a lot of people off you know i mean i try not to i really do because i, I don't like when it happens to me but i, mean, I think but, it's, i think it's good for people to hear it yeah you well know. here's you know one of the guys who really had a big influence on me was jamie abersold you know the guy who yeah, did yeah. the jazz the jazz catalog thing um i had the opportunity several times over my teaching career to be like at an institute where he came in to do a clinic with yeah. the students. And I watched this guy. He he does this his whole his whole life is this. He comes in, he's got an hour with the students, and he's got to do something of value for them. Yeah. And and I watched him and one, he's very formulaic. He's got his material is down. But, you know, people will play and he just, you know, whereas me, if I was their teacher for the whole semester, you know, you have to think about the psychology and how to you know, in the long run, he's in there for an hour. He does not have time to coddle you. He's just like, no. He comes right at He tells you exactly what's not right. Yeah. He tells you how to fix it. And then it's up to you to do it. And, and that was very uh, influential to me because he did it in a way that wasn't a- annoying or aggravating or, or didn't belittle students. Yeah. And I think that's the important, important thing. You don't want to belittle people. I mean, people come to me and they, they, they ask me the questions, but they're really trying to tell me what they think is right. You know, and even if they're dead wrong, I mean, you know, you, I don't want to ever react to someone in a way where they feel like they're being belittled or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, I don't have time to, to, to paint a picture for you. It's like, it's this. You want to tell them know? the truth and get it, you yeah, know, get it out uh, on the yeah. table. And, and, and I think that, you know, in a lot of institutional settings, that's not always encouraged uh, because uh, institutional settings, the, the main thing, it seems, is to keep them enrolled so you can keep making money off of them. Retention of customers. Right. Yeah, you, want to ret- you don't want to drive your customers away, right? But, but that's one of the problems when education becomes a business. I mean, there's, there's a line. You know, yeah. As a teacher, I don't want to be concerned with that. I want to be concerned with the students' you know, benefit. Yeah, yeah. Not, when, did you, not, when did you get into teaching? Because obviously you went to Berkeley. Actually, let's just yeah, rewind went, for a minute. How did you end up at Berkeley as a student? Uh, well, I mean, I went to, you know, through high school. I was, I was a musician. I went to the High School of Music and Art in New York with Marcus Miller and Omar Hakim and Bob Francesini and Arturo Alfaro. Were you all in the same year? Were you all in the same yeah, year? Yeah, yeah, we were all the same. Marcus was a year ahead of me. Uh, Omar, I think he was the same year as me. Kenny Washington was there. I mean, we had some badasses in my school. I mean, guys who are still out there killing it. And then there's me, you know, but (laughs) get away. (laughs) But, you know, but these guys, you know, uh, it was a music magnet school. And so I knew really early on, this is what I'm doing. I'm not, you know, I, it it became very clear right away. This is my path. And, and so, you know, the logical step was to go to a music college. Yeah. Uh, I was entertaining going to like a conservatory for classical bass 
and had oh, worked. Oh, so you hooked right thing was still going on? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, all through high school, I was studying. I was, you know, really into it uh, as much as I could be. I'm not. I love classical music, but it's not my heart music. It's not what I'm drawn to. I, I find tremendous benefit and in learning it and and a lot of pleasure in listening to it. But it's not something I would have worked as well. I would have been a good classical musician. Yeah. I mean, I was playing rock and roll, guitar and blues and, you know, I wasn't that personality type. Yeah. yeah but uh, yeah. I, I was going to do that, though. But then as, as closer I got to it, the more I realized this really doesn't fit me. You know, there's a certain, you know, uh, thing that you have to be you have to be willing to sacrifice tremendous amounts of time to be a good classical musician and it's yeah. super competitive whereas you know playing jazz or other stuff i mean it's it's a little bit more up to you as opposed to like i may not be the best technical player in the world but i might have something i can offer this group yeah, whereas yeah. if you're in classical music if you're not technically like top of the fucking shelf you ain't getting hired nobody's gonna hire you because there's so many amazing technically monstrous people coming out of these schools i mean you know you have to really and i that's that that's basically you know i just don't have that kind of discipline it's different so yeah, yeah but anyway yeah, i mean I, I started uh i i went to berkeley after high school because at the time i was still identifying as a guitar player and oh, uh, well, it was one of the few. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, in fact, that I applied to Berkeley as a guitar player. Uh, but a last minute intervention by a friend who'd been there already. He said, look, you know, you're a good guitar player, but you're going to show up there and you're going to be one of 2000 guitar players who it will seem like they're all better than you. And you're going to have a hard time dealing with that. You know, and, and the opportunities are going to be less. You you have to be so much better to stick out in the pack. And then he looks over in the corner and says, hey, you see that thing over there? You play that, go to Berkeley on that, and your life will be a golden ticket because you'll always have a gig, you'll always have work, you know, and yeah. people will want will – want, you'll be like in demand as opposed to just another guitar player. So, was he a guitar player? So, he was a guitar player. In fact, this guy was one of my early guitar teachers. And, uh, you know, he went there and it didn't work out for him. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, you know, he said, look, let me just, that's, this is my advice. And, and frankly, I, uh, it was the best advice I ever got Yeah. because, you know, I, I probably wouldn't have lasted at Berkeley as a guitar player. I mean, I was pretty good for my age, but you know, w knowing what I know now, I, I made the right choice and I'm not suited to be a guitar player anyway. I, I just, you know. Uh, you know, the personality types, if we look at the people who play different instruments, you don't want to generalize, but you can say that there are archetypes like yeah. a lot, a lot of trumpet players all have the little soul patch and, and drive little red sports cars. You can say that because it's true <laughs> in a great more true than not, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. players have certain things, traits, personality traits. Uh, I didn't really dig the whole cutting thing. Like whenever you'd play with another guitar player, it just seemed like they were just out to bury you. Yeah, yeah And it's yeah. like, you know, I'm not into that. It's like this isn't a sport. Yeah. You know, bass playing is about supporting the music. And so, to me, it's a more... Did that feel more natural for you? It's a more, yeah, better fit. Yeah, you know, yeah. I didn't have that killer, like, I'm going to cut you. You know, <laughs> it's nice. The nice thing is... Like, 
But bench I can players, see that, Ed. Uh, there's a bit of that in you. I can see. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, it's there, but I keep it suppressed so that I don't wind up in jail, you know. <laughs> so when you got to Berkeley, did you, did you actually go on upright? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 The scary thing is when I showed up there, I didn't realize I had to tell them that I switched in my mind. I switched. All right, I'm going to play bass. I didn't tell them. So I showed up there. I didn't even bring a guitar. Yeah. And they're like, I get my schedule and it's like all these guitar classes. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And I went in and I talked to the guy. I said, look, you know, and he's like, well, I'm sorry. We have you here on guitar and your whole schedule and blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, what? And I said, I didn't even bring a guitar. He says, well, well what did you want to do then? I said, well, I want to play upright bass. He says, ah, sold, you know, <laughs> oh, you know, it's like, no problem. You know, we need that. You know, we don't need another guitar player. We need this. So it, it was easy, but it was a scary moment when I thought, oh, God, I'm not going to be able to do it. Yeah, they might send me home or something. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I went to Berkeley, and look, I went for a while and then started getting a lot of gigs, and, you know, I dropped out like a lot of guys did back then. I mean, I think they have a higher graduation rate now, uh, but back when I was there in the 70s, the typical path for performance guys was you show, you go up, you go there, you get it together, Get your contacts until you're working enough, and then you split. Yeah, and that's I met what so I, that's many guys did. that did that. Did a few semesters, yeah. met as many people as they could, and then split and started working as yeah. a musician. Yeah, did yeah. The get, old so that was the when old. the whole electric bass thing started in Berkeley, yeah. was it? And did you get yeah. your jazz together in Berkeley? Had you had you even looked into that before you got there? Yeah, I mean, I, I had studied a little bit, like my last year of high school. Uh, we had a, an amazing jazz program at my high school, needless to say. I mean, look at the players that were there, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there was a teacher at the time there, a guy named Mr. D, Justin DeChocho, who's like a – now he's gone on. He left the high school system, and he went – he's been teaching, I don't know, at big schools. I don't know if he was at Manus or Juilliard. He was like – he's like one of the preeminent jazz educators in, yeah. in the New York area now. And and if you look at his student list, like you know, I mean, just say Marcus Miller and Kenny Washington, that's enough. Yeah, you know? yeah. But he he guided so many amazing musicians, and and I took, and there's and then me, right? But no, he uh, he I took his jazz class, first time on guitar, and I was like, yeah, okay, you know, it's all right. But then I, at the second semester, I took it again on bass, and it was like, okay. This makes a little more sense to me. And yeah. so that was kind of where I got started with this, uh, playing jazz. And then, you know, uh, I didn't have a lot of experience when I, in jazz when I went to Berkeley. But, you know, I guess I had some basic musicianship together. So I was able to go right into the ensembles. Like, I didn't have to take labs. I could already walk and do changes. Not Presumably not that well, but well enough. Um so, you know, I kind of got kicked into the, the performance stuff pretty early there, which was good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I went to Berkeley, got, got started working. And, you know, eventually when you get out of school and you, and you have to support yourself, uh, you know, you start looking at, well, how can I make some money? Uh, there are two things that occurred to me. One was uh, teaching. Yeah. The second one was playing electric bass, which by the time I got out of Berkeley, I, I was – like into electric bass. When I first got it, it was like, 
well, I guess I better get one of these too. You know, if I'm going to be a bass player, I might, I might as well play electric bass too. There is a very strong, oh, this is a toy bass. It's not the real bass. You know, the kind of silly stuff that upright players, some some upright players feed that to make themselves feel better about what they do. It's like, <laughs> yeah, hey, you yeah. know what? I'm sorry nobody calls you for gigs because you only play upright, but you don't have to disparage every other person that played. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but at the at the time I was young, I had that thing, that chip on my shoulder. So uh so I got one and I started playing and you know, Jocko was huge. I mean, it was nineteen seventy seven. I mean Jocko was it. And uh, Is that when the album you know, came out? Seventy seven, right? Uh well his album his solo album came out in I think it was seventy five or seventy six. In fact I remember one of my earliest memories of exposure to that i was in mr DeChocho's jazz class uh and it was it was like we were just hanging around it wasn't we weren't doing anything but we we're there and marcus miller came in uh to the class and said, hey yo mr d check this out he brings in this album of jocko pastorius on the cover i'm like you know i didn't know who it was and he put it on donna lee and like i just remember us all like <laughs> what Oh, what you know it was like the moon the moon landing what and that you know that was really like the first i'd heard of this guy yeah and and of course by the time i got to school i mean he became the thing i ripped my frets out of my my kramer aluminum neck base you know this yeah, is what yeah, somebody yeah, yeah. this is what somebody who doesn't know what electric bases are well that's what they'll buy if you, the first time you know <laughs> i should have bought a fender jazz right but instead i bought a kramer Aluminum neck bass, and, and then I wonder why all the blues bands wouldn't let me play with them. You know, it's like, <laughs> but uh, you know, but but I got into it. You know, but I realized soon that you know, if I'm gonna make a living, I gotta do both, uh, and teaching too. You know, I yeah. mean, when I first started teaching, it was really just like I gotta make money, and I really. Like a lot of people, when they start teaching, you know, they just start doing it. You know, you don't. You don't have to pass a test to put a, an ad up and say bass lessons. So yeah. I, you know, I learned as I went, and uh, you know, I was. The intention was always good. I may not have had the skill level, but one of the things I always did from the very beginning was write my own materials because, you know, I mean, I used lots of books, and I would use stuff out of books too, but uh, you know, I didn't always feel like they represented what I wanted to share. Yeah. Or what I thought of, you know, or in the, in a clear way, or so I always started writing my own materials out right away, and you know, eventually that led to you know me writing books and all of that stuff. Books but, and columns uh, and magazines but, and things like that. Yeah, but uh, you know, I mean, my first few years, I mean, I remember I had one student, and I just felt so bad. I I almost didn't want to take his money. It was like. I don't think I'm really helping you here, but you know, well, your dad already wrote the check, so all right, I'll take it. But you know, but I mean, now I don't have any problem taking their money. But when uh, when you um, when you left Berkeley, how long did it was it before you actually went back and started teaching there? Uh, it was about it was about five years, I guess. I mean, I I left Berkeley. I stayed in Boston for a few years, and I got real busy. Did lots of you know different kinds of gigs, and and then. Um, I moved back to New York. I'm originally, you know, a New Yorker, and I moved back to New York to to make it there and be a big famous jazz guy. And uh, 
you know, I mean, that didn't happen per se, but I did have a lot of amazing experiences. I got to play with a lot of, you know, amazing yeah. jazz musicians there. And I learned a lot. I learned so much there. I mean, uh, if I would have stayed, who knows? Um, one of the other things that happened out, out of my time in New York was I decided to commit myself a little bit more to electric bass yeah. because I started to see the that jazz martyrdom thing, you know, yeah. is very is very a limiting perspective to take on music. Like I wanted to go and play upright, you know, jazz, real jazz, you know, acoustic, swing based, you know, jazz. Yeah. And uh, and that's a great thing. And there are some people who do very well at that. Uh, if you're if you're the right type of player, the right personality type, and all that. But one of the things that I noticed, and, and this is not universal to all jazz players, but very prevalent in the scene, especially back then, is this sort of martyrdom. Like if you play jazz, you can only play jazz. You can only listen to jazz. You must suffer this the 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 economic misfortunes <laughs> of being a jazz player if you want to be the real thing if you want to be taken serious if you want to be taken seriously if you want to be the real deal it has to be your whole life and nothing else is good and and i remember being in play in like listening to you know a jukebox comes on and it's some really cool r&b tune and or non-jazz thing and just watch the look on these guys like it's like, motherfucker, that's Al Green. What are you giving me that look? That's Al Green. <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah, turning yeah. your nose up at that? You know, so I, I, I got really fed up with, you know, like that chauvinism of, of that people. And it's not just jazz. Look, anybody in any scene, that happens to some people. Yeah. Uh, what I do is the shit. Everything else is crap, right? No, I, that does, that's a New York this is this is the shit. That's crap. That that's a total <laughs> yeah, yeah, New yeah. York explanation. But uh, you know, I'm pardon for the younger viewers out there. They're your tender ears, you know. But anyway, I'm a New Yorker. Every other word out of my mouth is <laughs> f bomb. But but what, you know, what would you say the, the, to the, students the, that the uh, yeah. What would you say to students that are, uh, you know a a kind of having this those type of um, influences come into their lives now, like people putting a down on certain types of music because it does mm. happen to it's happened to me you know like oh, many yeah. times i've heard people diss music and say oh this is crap when it's really really good like what advice would you give to students that are, are going through those types of experiences well i think the first step and it's it's not easy always when you're a young person coming up into a scene because you know you're young you look up to the people who were there before you uh but you know, part of it, I think you have to develop enough of a sense of yourself and what you like and what works for you, what you're into, what you want to do with your music uh, to be able to follow that and, and disregard uh, counterproductive attitudes and opinions from other people. You know, you have to have enough of a sense of yourself to be able to recognize counterproductive attitudes you know, first, yeah, yeah. and then and then choose to ignore it and say, you know, whatever, man, you know, think what you want. I'm going to do my thing, you know. What are you listening uh, to now? Me? Yeah. Uh, you know, what I've been listening to a lot lately is, uh, and, and have for many years, is early rhythm and blues. Um, 
partly because I love the music, partly because right now my new column in Bass Player Magazine, little plug, plug. plug there, <laughs> I, have a, I have a column called R&B Gold. Uh, and, you know, so like I'm researching the early years of rhythm and blues, like starting in the late 40s and up through the 50s. What people think R&B, they think a whole different thing now. I mean, they think stuff that people I don't even know. But, you know, R&B has come to mean like, you know, it's it's always been, you know, like a, a race-related term. I mean, it was originated as a way to get away. There used to be a term in music marketing called race music, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think at some point they realized, hey, you know, that's kind of, that doesn't sound. Yeah, this isn't that's cool. Kinda, that's a little denigrating, you know. So they changed it. To, they call, start calling it rhythm and blues. Uh, but, you know, now what's considered R&B is like pop, Beyonce is considered yeah, yeah, R&B. Yeah. And all right, maybe, you know, legitimately it's part of the continuum. So, okay. Call, but what I call R&B is, you know, like Louis Jordan, you know, guys like swing, the jump guys from the 40s, uh, Ray Charles, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Motown. All I mean, uh, to me, my scope of R&B goes up to about 1980. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah. it includes disco, you know, but, yeah. uh, but, you know, so anyway, I've been listening to a lot of that also because... Uh, you know, like the we listen a lot. The band listens to music on the bus sometimes, and and a lot. You know, everybody has the opportunity to play what they want to play. Yeah. Uh, and it seems that a lot of what we tend to all gravitate towards is like early rhythm and blues stuff, or funk, uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. You know, like things like that. Like there's, and even disco. I mean, which was a style of music I did not like when it came out. When in, in the seventies. I was very firmly in the disco sucks camp. I didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was cheesy and, you know, the fashion and the style. The whole, it just wasn't my thing. Uh, so I denigrated that. But now, you know, years later, I have a real appreciation for, for some of it. Not all of it. Some of it's stupid, you know. But uh, but a lot of the early disco was like amazing musicians hitting yeah, yeah. killer grooves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the, you know, fly, Robin, fly. All right, this is a stupid song. But... There's a groove under there. There's human beings playing that. And and I have learned to appreciate that, especially comparing it to like all the ele electronically simulated stuff that people do now. Oh, I want to make a record. Okay. You know, open up my plugins and my loops. And there's no human element anymore. Yeah. So, you know, I can listen back to what I might have once thought was cheesy disco. And I hear humans it's making really en yeah, yeah, yeah. energy happening. And then I can listen to modern R&B, and it's all mechanized and you know sampled, yeah, yeah, and it's like there's no human element, and this you know it's not it doesn't speak to me, but you know it's just a preference thing. But was so anyway, was Jameson and like Duck Dunn and all those guys back then were they like a big influence to you as you were like learning the bass, or was it did you get into thinking about how you got into the electric bass? Were you more focused on like people like Jaco Pastorius, and then? And then later discovered the guys yeah. like Jameson. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, look, the, uh, Dunn and Jameson, those guys had a huge influence on me in my early life in an unconscious way. Because I listened to pop music. I listened to the radio. I grew up in the 60s listening to pop radio. And all the Motown and all the, you know, uh, Green Onions, all that was all on the radio. And I heard all that. Yeah. And I listened to it and I liked it, you know, but I wasn't thinking, gee, who's playing bass on this, you know? Um, when I got into electric bass, it was very directly 
like, oh man, Jocko, this is amazing. And and all the guys of that, not just him, Stanley Clark. Stanley Clark was probably my first jazz influence on the bass yeah. because, you know, I mean, Return to Forever and all that was huge when I was in high school. And, you know, I remember the first one, when I decided to learn how to play upright, the first thing I wanted, uh, the jazz upright, the first thing I tried to teach myself to do is that Stanley Lick. <laughs> no, he just got, he just top to bottom. <laughs> you know, I kept working on that. And, uh, I actually got to ask him once in an interview. So, like, when you do that, you know, that riff, that thing, are you playing real notes or are you just kind of going for it? He says, I'm just going for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, there's no notes there. It's just like, that's all. So, it's, but it's all in the timing, of course. But, but yeah, no, I mean, I saw I discovered like rhythm and blues and blues playing after the fact. Yeah. Which has been a, you know, honestly, it's been an interesting, because I had to go backwards, you know. I, I started right out going for, like, the heavy stuff and the, the intricate and the technical and the yeah. jazz. And, and then, you know, having to play commercial gigs, I way overplayed. I played way, I was always, like, trying to come up with these counter, and, you know, singers would say, hey, man, you know, just chill it out, you know, a little bit. And I was like, oh, man, they're just trying to squash my dreams. <laughs> Whatever, you know, <laughs> the, early, the, the early years of that, you know, I had to learn to, to play less. And I'm still every, every day with me on the bass, it's, it's learning to play less, to, to say more with less. Because uh, the, the genres, the, the, the neighborhoods that I live in now musically, there's no value placed on a bass player's ability to play a lot of notes yeah, it's, yeah. it's just it is a hindrance it's going to get you fired and uh, like and, obviously with the gig that you're, you the mavericks gig that is like a really minimalistic sort oh, of yeah. like rootsy type of vibe that you're playing was absolutely it, like so talk about the gigs how how did you get the gig to start with was it oh, like an gig? audition procedure or was it a phone call well, hey ed come and do the mavericks gig yeah no it was uh, well it's always through someone you know essentially and uh there at the time the guy who was playing bass with them is a fellow named james intveld who's very popular on his own right as a front man he's a singer a songwriter plays all the instruments and uh he's like kind of in that rockabilly sort of world yeah. i don't want to pigeonhole him too much but you know you you'd call him like a rootsy rockabilly roots country kind of guy honky tonk rockabilly um and so he was playing bass with the Mavericks because he was friends with one of the guys in the band. They needed someone, and he was doing the gig. But I worked with him. Like, he used to come into Austin every now and then and play shows, and I got connected with him and played, like, just little honky-tonk gigs with him. And uh, a year, about a year later, I, I ran into him. We were on this cruise, a blues cruise gig. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, this thing that happens every January. So we're on the cruise gig, and, and I saw him playing with the Mavericks. I was like, first of all, I didn't even know he played upright bass. So I'm like, wow, like, man, you know, you do it, you do it all, right? And I, I talked to him, and, and we were hanging out, and, and he said, you know, I got a few shows coming up that I booked before I took this gig that I got to do. So, you know, I said, hey, if you need a sub, give me a holler, you know, and, and it, it turned out he did. And so I went out to sub for him, but like, you know, really in his heart, I think 
as though as much as he enjoyed playing the gig, I he's a front man. Yeah. And the Mavericks gig on bass, it's it's not what you have to do is very simple, but doing it requires a couple of things, you know, stamina, strength, and a willingness yeah. to do that. Now, I think he had those things, but the other thing that he necessarily, like, he, look, when you're a lead singer, when you're a songwriter, what you want, you want to be there. You want to be the guy in front yeah. doing your song. And and I think it's a really difficult thing to, to for someone in that position to just sign your, yourself off as, I'm just going to play bass for these guys. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. All, really, he wanted to get back to his solo career. Yeah. So, when I went out, I subbed. And my intention was to just like have them like me so I could sub several times a year when he needed me. But instead, they offered me the gig. And I was like, ooh, well, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to steal a gig from anyone. But they said, look, James wants to get back to his career. Yeah. And I said, okay. You know, I, I don't want to be like, I'm not a predatory guy. I didn't come after his gig. But, you know, they offered it to me and explained that, you know, he wants to move on. So I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. So... And was it when you started doing the gig? Because did you have to, did you have to kind of check yourself sometimes and just think, make sure you're not playing too much? Because well, yeah, yeah, absolutely, sure, and and I still do. I mean, to a degree, uh, uh, you know, the lines that we, the, the lines that I play, there's two different types of ballparks. There's like Latin-based stuff, you know, because some of the tune is a heavy Latin influence. So there's Latin lines, root 5-8 kind of thing. Yeah. And then there's quarter note lines, which could either be ska. We do a lot of ska, early ska. I love that. And we, we play like, like early ska. We'll play jump blues. Uh, we'll play honky-tonk. And all of these things is boom, 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 roots, root 3-5. Yeah. Try it. So, you know, um, but... You know, one of the things I always, well, how about if I go three, five root, like, you know, inversions, right? Yeah. I, I'm always trying to see what, but you know what? That gets me off, not in trouble, but, you know, Raul, our lead singer, is also a very talented bass player. And he hears everything. He's a real musician. You know, he's not just a lead singer. He's a very musical person. It, yeah. So anything I do, anything that I do that's slightly different than what he expects to hear, it's like, like I, he he doesn't even turn his head. I just I just I just see his neck, like you know, his neck, the vein, the vein. It's like oh, third in the base, you know. So I I have to remind myself that while many things can work, in this case, I have to go with the one thing that we know works. So yeah. you know, uh, there are a few moments in the in, where I can open it up a little bit, but. Uh, you know, the requirement of the job doesn't allow me a lot of uh, musical freedom in that, like, I can't choose what notes I play always freely. I have to stick with the part. Yeah. And, and I can't vary it subtly always over the span of an arrangement. I can't build a part so much as it is playing the same thing but working with the energy level. That's a big part of it. It's not so much what I play as much as how I'm playing it. Um, so the goals are of course to like embody the rhythm, you know, yeah. to like be the rhythm, you know, whatever it is, yeah. even though half the time I'm just playing boom, 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 the quarter note. 
it's funny, Mike, the, the guitar tech who's been with the band forever, he'll stand on the far side of the stage and every now and then I look over at him and he's looking at me and his mouth is just went boom, 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 boom. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is our little little moment during the show. I look over and he's like boom, boom, boom. But that's what I that's what I do most of the time. But and I think really a I huge amount I don't, of skill in that though. I don't have any problem with yeah. that. Whereas some people might feel like it's too limiting. I mean, but you know, one uh, this kind of gig, you you have to like the music you're playing because if if you would rather be playing jazz fusion, don't do this it's gig not gonna because work. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to work. If if you're happy with if you like the music and you like the way the music sounds, then you naturally gravitate towards playing the right thing. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's. But I do, you know, have to call myself back every now and then, like you know. Keep it, keep it lean. But what I try to do is, you know, get in the rhythm and make it happen from, you know, it's, it's a holistic thing. It's like not just I'm playing this. It's like I am this and I'm yeah. bringing this to the band with every possible fiber of my musical being. And, yeah. and to commit to that on such a simple thing as playing a triad in quarter notes a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that or wouldn't want to do that. You know, um, I find a lot of uh, strength in that. There's a discipline to that that is really uh, kind of powerful. And yeah, yeah. also, uh, you know, it's amazing how if you just get your brain out of the way and play the right thing and don't mess with it, it's amazing how great the whole thing can become. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. those times when I'm trying to reinvent the wheel that I think the music suffers. So yeah, yeah. Uh, in this instance, it's not about that type of creativity. It's a different kind of creativity. It's like, how can you get in there and make it feel like like you're committed to be committed? You know, it's a commitment. So. It, it's like, a different like, kind of skill. I, yeah, honestly. I was going to say, it's an, like, I think it's a really, I think there's... As much skill goes into that as playing a, a ton of notes a minute, you know, it's 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 a it's a completely different skill. But uh, you know, it's just it's a, it's a really important skill to have. Do you feel yeah. like you've learned a lot from doing the gig? Oh yeah, sure. I learn a lot all the time. I mean, uh, I've learned a lot about about these things I'm yeah. talking about, and also, you know, look, I've had a you know fairly checkered past, a long storied career. I play with a lot of people. Uh, for the most part, these were always like, oh, this guy is in town. We need a guy. Call Ed. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. I was like living living locally in a town, and I was the guy. They call, oh, we need a guy. He can do this. He can do that. So I was I played with lots of people, but it may have only been one time or maybe a couple of times. Like I wasn't touring with these people for years. You know, they came to town. They needed someone who could back them. I did the gig. So they're on my resume, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were not usually not long-standing associations. So uh, fancy way of saying I've been a freelancer my whole life. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. so now I'm in a band. I play with a band. I'm not in the band, but I'm I'm a I'm I'm a hired player with this. Player. Band, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, that's my total musical commitment. My and uh, it was a big adjustment. One because. You know, part of what, like you see, I've got all these bases. They're all different. They all do different things. And and I have always 
sort of built my, if I did anything deliberate, it was that I, I always tried to play a lot of different kinds of music because I love it all. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be happy just being a jazz guy. Uh, I, there's something about playing a Merle Haggard song that just touches me in the deepest places, so similar to the way I feel when I'm listening to Coltrane, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, like, I, I can't, you know, I need variety. Uh, luckily, this, this band has, within its, its sphere, there is quite a bit of variety. You know, they're actually yeah. very, very versatile players. And this, as a band, I think are capable of going in a whole lot of directions that would surprise the hell out of people. But, you know, they're known for what they do. And so we typically do what we do. But, you know, oh, like... We're a freaking killing band, man. We were watching them earlier today. And we just, they're just... You know, you can tell that they've been playing. You can tell they've yeah. done thousands and thousands of gigs. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's it's a it's a group of guys who've been out there doing that for a long time, and they're really good at it. But you know, the scope, like, just as an example, we do this kind of thing that we do. But yesterday or two days ago, in Soundcheck, I don't know how this happened. We just started playing uh, Teenage Wasteland. You know, and it was like, I don't know, where did this come from? We did the whole freaking tune. It was like, hey, let's let's do that. That would blow people's minds, you know. And yeah. then we start then we said we start doing Us and Them by Pink Floyd. And it's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody would put that together with this band. But but the fact is, is these guys, you know, as a band collectively, there's a whole there's quite a breadth of of uh, experience there. So. It's kind of fun in that when we get those moments where we can sort of break out of the mold. But, yeah. uh, but you know, the big thing, really a big adjustment for me is one, being in one band, giving essentially my entire life over to this organization. Yeah. Uh, whereas before, I had a million things in the fire. I was playing with 20 bands a month. I had a student load, uh, had writing commitments and, you know, also just... 30 different things going on to make the bills happen, you know, I mean, and I, and I did very well for my, you know, I've, you know, had a, I feel like a very successful career in that I've, I haven't had to starve to death. Yeah, I've been able to, to does, do well at what I, you know, relaxing, just doing one thing. Yeah. But now it's like, I don't have to think about, uh, wait, what was today? Huh? In fact, I had to remind myself, Oh wait, this is out of the blue for me. So I had, I had to remind myself, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, but, you know, I mean, so really, like now there's an app that a lot of the touring bands use called Master Tour. And I've got that on my phone. Everything is in Master Tour. The where we're going, what the whole day schedule. So it's like, what am I doing? Wait, let me look at Master Tour. It's, it's my well, whole is it life like is a, essentially is it now. Is like a diary or something for touring bands? Well, it's sort of like, it's not a diary, but it's like a, it's a scheduling tool. It's a calendar. Yeah. And the tour manager inputs the data for, for that date, the, the tours, all, you know, where the venue is, the bus times, everything, the time, sound check, the whole day is scheduled, you know, and when we leave, when the bus is leaving, that kind of, everything that you need to know is, so is in this app. Like 10 different emails about different gigs right. and yeah, 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 it's all kept in one place. If something changes, the emails go out, but generally speaking, you know, we just all look at this program and, and everything we need to know is there. Usually, I mean, you know, I'd like to say that it's always up to date, but you know, yeah, that's yeah, it is what it is, but, isn't it? it yeah, is it is. but so you know, it's it's been interesting, uh, not just in terms of my time as a person, but you know, just being 
in constant contact with the same group of people over and over again. See, being being in my old life, I was like the guy, I was like the high-priced call girl, right? Like, oh man, we need somebody, <laughs> you know, my bass player's sick. Who do I know that could, who could just walk in and do the job? Yeah. Oh, Ed, because he's He's a pretty smart feller. So they got they call me. I'm the guy, I'm the guy who walks in, saves the day. Everybody's I'm everyone's hero. And then I go home. Yeah, and I don't have yeah. to deal with anybody else, you know. Yeah. And I, I and, and I kind of I'm well suited to that. I am a friendly person, but I am also kind of introverted in in some ways and and private or personal whatever, you know. Um I have a personal I keep my life my personal life separate from whatever, you yeah. know. I I like privacy, right? But when you're in a band with a bunch of guys and you're on the buses, you know, it forces it's forced me into, uh, you know, another kind of growth, which is like, you know, like how to be in a group of people for a long period of time. The same people, yeah. you know, where who who get sick of you or or you get sick of them and just ha but you still have to play together. It's like and, a family. And, isn't it? It's like a marriage. Yeah, I expect. Well, exactly. You know, it, it very much is. Uh, some aspects of that I really like, you know, because there's a feeling of like, you know, we're a team, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, being a bass player, uh, you know, a freelance guy. I was always like an independent city state. I'm like the Vatican or, you know, whatever, you know, I'm like self-contained, plug me in, I'll do your job. And then I go, you know, like a but now it's like I'm an, I'm a cog in part of a bigger machine. Uh, and, and so it's. It's a different way of being a musician. It's a different way of being uh, in my life, but uh, but there's a lot of good things about that. Uh, you know, it's not sounds. always com it's not always comfortable, but you know the, the discomfort that I experience from that is a lesson for me to an opportunity to learn something, whether it's good or bad. So you know, I mean, and not to make it sound like it's this big hardship. I mean, it's just you know, it's a different kind of life. You know, yeah, being yeah, yeah with this group of guys all the time. Uh, and they're, they're nice guys. You know, I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no big, uh, conflict, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, everybody yeah, gets yeah. Along. everyone's pretty chill, good but guys, good music, right? Yeah. And that, so that's important. You know, I don't think it would have, it wouldn't have worked, uh, other in, in other circumstances. Like, that's the thing is like, I was never, planning on getting a road gig and touring all over the place yeah, and yeah. that was never a goal for me i'm a homeboy i like to stay at home i got a wife i got a life i got a lot of bases to play you have I, got I a like lot of bases and and i would have i would have just kept doing that but this opportunity came up and uh it was too good to pass up Absolutely. you know i wouldn't have joined up with just any band honestly it really the fact is that i was a mavericks fan for a long time and I like what they do a lot. It's yeah, what yeah. their music, their music is very, you know, speaks to me in, in a lot of ways. But if, if it was just a gig, you know, uh, I probably wouldn't have changed my entire life around to yeah, do this. So it, was I, like the the, it was the perfect opportunity, right? I, I mean, I had a very good thing going for myself. I, I didn't need the gig, but I wanted it because I liked the music. And, and so, you know, just to say that, like, there's a whole lot of people who could have called me for the similar, same exact type of gig, and I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. yeah in fact, yeah. most most people, I would say, no, thank you. So you know, it's special in that respect for me, in that you know, the music really does satisfy a lot for me, and uh, 
the experience, you know, it's it's a different thing. It's not just about how clever you can be. It's about how present and committed I can be to that moment, even though that moment has happened in every single show we've done in the last month. I mean, you know, like we're not a jazz band. There's not yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot. It's not a lot of improvisation going on. I mean, there's solos. The solos are free to be whatever they are but but yeah people like you know like there are parts it's yeah, a band yeah, yeah. It's, it's not a jazz gig and the so, audience are probably expecting the parts they want to hear the parts right oh yeah of course yeah i mean it's part of the song it's you know of it you know yeah so you know part of it was from a uh like learning to not and i still do this you know as a jazz guy i train myself well, I don't say train, but what happens is you hit a point in the music where, you know, it's all happening, and, and you, I sort of like transcend the body, yeah, 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 and and I'm playing from this overview, like you know, like I'm discorporate, I'm floating above the band, and yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. out of body experience, and and that's part of the beauty of of a great jazz experience is that moment where you enter through that door, but this. It's a different, there's a different thing. You know, that doesn't happen because uh, it's, it's, it's not that same kind of music, but there's a, an equal level of, of, of participation yeah, yeah, yeah. that, that has to be there. And that's the challenge because, you know, I've spent so many years playing gigs just as a jobbing musician. You take a gig, you, you go, you do the best you can, but, you know, sometimes it's not something you care about. Yeah, we've yeah, all yeah, yeah. we all you take a gig for the money and you show up and you don't like the band you don't like the music you don't like anything but you're there to, to do the job and you try to stay you know friendly and and do the gig and go and you say man that sucked you know <laughs> and, and, and there's this place that that i developed for myself a protection mode where i can be in the middle of this horrible crap and do my job and not let it get in me you know yeah, yeah, i mean yeah, so yeah, you learn yeah, to protect yeah. yourself from that and and the unfortunate reality of being a freelance musician is if you want to work if you're not in a position where you can refuse gigs you're going to be in that situation a lot yeah, yeah so now i have this mechanism in place and now suddenly i'm in this gig that's like this amazing gig that requires 100 percent focus all like when you're on stage and it's like, I can't go there. I have to, I, I can't let that creep back, you know, because like, oh, man, I've been play, playing these triads, you know, for six yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, always, yeah. you know, it would be very easy to just go. And and I've been called on it more than once. Like the drummer will say, hey, man, you know, it's not that my playing suffers yeah. or that the music suffers. But what happens, because I could play, look, you know, when you're when you're a freelance jobber kind of player on the street level, I'm not talking about. You know, when you play at the level, like the kind of gig, like, you know, all of our heroes, Victor and all these guys, those guys, what they do, it's very obvious. You can't do yeah. that. Yeah. But when you're playing street level bar bands and that's my a large part of my career has not been glamorous, you know. Yeah. And uh, so you, you develop that protection mode so that you can do the job and, and not come out feeling icky. Yeah, you know? like bad about your playing and bad about right. the situation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the thing is, is that mechanism. I have to, I have to get rid of that for this gig because it's all there. You got to be there. You got to be involved and um, fully focused. That's the it. that's the greatest challenge, really. You know, 
Absolutely. Luckily, like I said, because I like the music, that's the first thing. <laughs> because anything in it. Because yeah, because well, right, you know. But lots of people do look, you know. Even even at that level, lots of people take gigs that they don't necessarily dig just because it's a good gig. Yeah, you know, absolutely. this is a good gig. You know, like by anybody's standards, as a bass player, like yeah, hey, that's a good gig. You know, but if you don't really like love the music, other things become a problem. Like the repetitive nature of it yeah, can become yeah. a drag, yeah. uh, and the relative lack of freedom, move musical freedom might become a drag if you don't really love the music. So I'm, I'm glad that that's the case for me is that I'm involved. I'm, uh, I have a, an emotional attachment to the music we play. So that makes it all possible. Yeah. Without that, that, without that, I wouldn't last very long on this gig (laughs) or anybody really, because you know, why be there? Why do that to yourself? You know, if you, if it's, but I'm at a point now where I have that luxury, you know, not everybody has the luxury, you know. Yeah. So I'm great. I'm grateful for that to be in a place where I can finally do a gig with a band that I like and music that I care about, and 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 to devote myself to that as opposed to just you know taking calls from some guy. Well, we got 40 songs you got to learn by next Thursday, and they're all crap, you know. And it's 40 songs for the gig. <laughs> yeah, you know. So yeah, you know, it's been great. Uh, I look forward to more you know i mean i'm just like floating i'm let's see what they come up with we have a bunch of cool things coming up new you know worked on a a new studio record is almost done a live album is coming out from last fall um where can people find the schedule on their website is it on their website yeah yeah if you just go to i think it's the mavericksband.com or whatever it is um yeah their schedule's online and uh yeah i mean we're playing all over the place we are coming to europe again uh but just like crazy we're gonna we're coming in for three gigs three days in a row we're going to belgium spain and then holland bing bang bang and then at back and then out of it yeah so, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no time to really enjoy or or you know it's just gonna soak be up, like soak up the culture <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, uh, i think it is what it is it always it always seems to be like that doesn't it yeah yeah and if people yeah, want to find you like obviously your website is edfriedland.com yeah it i hate to say that it's it's been terribly neglected over the years i haven't really done a lot with keeping it current so but there's a lot there, there at one point there and stuff yeah like that. yeah 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 the books are there uh, you know, you can see what I've got, my, you know, my catalog and all of that stuff. Um, it, it's not terribly current, I hate to say, but, uh, but yeah. And on Facebook, I've got uh, a page called the Bass Whisperer. Yeah. You know, YouTube channel. And yeah, the YouTube channel. You know, honestly, I'm not very active there either right now. I haven't done any videos in a while, and and I'm not really. I used to answer every question what's the best base for metal you know uh i would answer all but i'm not really do i'm not in touch with that now it's just it's it's there yeah you can go you can watch well, but i'm not really... videos man there's some what i'll do is everybody i'll hook up everything we've talked about so the band and your youtube channel your facebook uh, yeah. your website i'll put it in the show notes for the podcast ed yeah man you're bloody awesome dude <laughs> thanks scott thanks for Appreciate coming and hanging out today we're gonna to have to leave early because i'm literally i've got todd johnson now we're, we're oh, yeah. with todd it's a podcast conveyor belt today we're just that's we're great in them all up but man honestly 
Huge. Say huge. hi to say hi to Todd for me. He's I an will old do, friend man. of mine. I will do. Take it easy. Take care. See you in a bit, man. Bye. Bye. Take care, man. Okay, guys, thanks for hanging out and checking out that interview with Ed Friedland. Hopefully you enjoyed it, as I did. Um, next week, well, next week we've got, you know, it's secret. I'm, I'm keeping it a secret. It might be somebody really big. That's a bit of a, a, a teaser for you. But anyway, before I go, I just want to say a massive thanks to Ed for coming and hanging out with us. Remember, if you're an Academy member, you can check out all of his past live seminars in the Academy live stream seminar archive. There's tons of his tons of them in there and make sure you check out the one he did at SBL Live 2016 it's one of the best live seminars I think that that I've ever watched he really really got down to the nitty-gritty and told it you know told it how it is really really cool stuff and if you're not an academy member guys go over and check it out scottsbasslessons.com in a nutshell it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world and you can take it for a 14-day test drive totally free as always guys take it easy and I'll see you in the shed Thank you.